Good morning. Uh, this is the first week of Advent, and so uh, we're going to be taking a break from the book of Acts until next year as we study about what is Advent and what, do we, what does it mean that we're celebrating this time of year. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, um, turn to Isaiah chapter 2. For the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at different passages in the book of Isaiah as we talk about Jesus' coming. The first time that he came, we anticipate his second coming as well. Isaiah chapter 2, and if you didn't get one of the handouts, just raise your hand and a Chloe can help you out. We are in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This first week of Advent is the week of hope. And so we're going to be looking at our glorious future from Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Isaiah chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. It says, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths." For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore." O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this morning I pray that you would speak through your word to us and show us what is our glorious inheritance for the saints. And show us our glorious future, our destiny, our purpose as your people. Father, may your word not return void today. May it accomplish everything that you intend. Help me to say nothing more and nothing less than what I should say. And I pray that your word would speak. Lord, speak today by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's the first Sunday of Advent. Um, I grew up in a church, in a Baptist church, typical Baptist church, and that did not celebrate the, the Christian calendar. And so I wasn't very familiar with Advent growing up. It wasn't until later uh, that I learned the importance of it and, and how helpful it can be for us as we go through this season of time as, as we go through seasons in life and seasons throughout the year, um, there, there are times to focus on certain things. And so we get to the season of Advent, and Advent is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas 
day. Now, what is Advent? Advent is a Latin word that means coming. Advent is the Latin word for coming. It is a special time in the Christian calendar when we basically do two things, right? We are anticipating Christmas, right? We look back and rejoice at Jesus' first coming. This is a time to anticipate Christmas. We're looking forward to Christmas Day. We're looking forward to the first coming of Christ. We put ourselves in the mindset of the, of the, of the Jews who longed for the Messiah the first time. We're, we're anticipating This is a time of anticipation. So we are looking back and we're rejoicing in the first coming of Christ. But Advent has another purpose. The second purpose of Advent is when we look forward. We look forward with hope in Christ's second coming. This is not just looking back at what Jesus did. It's looking forward to what Jesus will do. And when we look at the book of Isaiah, we look at the Old Testament, we see there is great anticipation with God's people. Now before we look at Isaiah, I want to give you three things, and and this isn't in your notes, but it might be helpful to write down. As you read the Old Testament prophets, there are three main ingredients that come with Old Testament scriptures, especially the prophets. Okay, so if you're writing this down, these are just three things to remember three main ingredients for Old Testament prophecy, and it helps us to understand it. And the first thing that we, you're going to see, the first ingredient is Israel's uh, covenant breaking. We see that they break the covenant. They are constantly unfaithful to God. And so the prophets will always rebuke Israel. And we're going to see that. If you read Isaiah chapter 1, it is not fun, right? God is calling them to account for their idolatry. He's calling them to account for their wickedness and their rebellion. So that's the first ingredient, covenant breaking for Israel. The second ingredient are consequences, consequences for their sin. All right, he's, gonna, he's not just going to tell them what they're doing wrong. He's also going to tell them the consequences and the judgment and the wrath of God that's going to come as a result of their sin. And the third ingredient, and this is probably the most important one, is the God's covenant faithfulness. It's not just that Israel is unfaithful to the covenant. It's that God is faithful. And so the prophets, while they tell them about the consequences of their sin, he's also going to give them hope. He's also going to say, yes, you are unfaithful, but God is always faithful to his covenant, and he's going to fulfill his covenant. And so even in the midst of judgment, we should still have hope. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the hope of Israel, but also the hope of, of the church. Because when we read the Old Testament... We see that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of things prophesied in the Old Testament. All right, so we want to do two things. We want, to, we want to see how does this apply to Israel originally, but then also how does this apply to us as the church. All right, and so let's look at Isaiah chapter 2 with those three ingredients in mind, and I think it will help us as we interpret this prophet. So verse 1 says that the word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So Isaiah 
looks forward, God gives him a vision, and he looks forward, and he sees Israel's glorious destiny as God's lighthouse to the nations. This is a constant theme through Isaiah, that God intended Israel to be a light to the nations. God did not only intend to bless Israel, he intended to bless the nations, Right, So when you read Genesis chapter 12 and you read the covenant that God made with Abraham, what did he tell them? He tell them, he said, through, all, through you, all the nations will be blessed. Right? And so what, I, what Isaiah is going to see here is the future for Israel. Not the present, because they are living in wickedness. But he shows them the future, and the future is their destiny to be a lighthouse to the nations. And not just Israel, but also us as the church. This is our destiny. This is what we have been called to. So Isaiah is prophesying future destruction of Israel for its sin. But in the midst of that destruction and judgment, hope is sprinkled in. Now, Isaiah is a little bit difficult to interpret a lot of times. This is a little, little harder than Acts, right? We've been in the book of Acts. Acts is pretty straightforward. It tells a story. But when you read Isaiah, man, you really have to take some time with it. And I was reminded of what my preaching professor at Beeson Divinity School said, Dr. Robert Smith. He said, Josh, when you preach a text, before you ever preach a passage, you need to read the passage 50 times. 50. To make sure you get it. Now, I didn't read it 50 times, but I, I read it about 48, right, to try to figure out what is Isaiah talking about here, right? And as you read it 48 times, you start to notice little details. Did you notice this detail? It doesn't say that Isaiah heard a word from the Lord. It doesn't say that. It says that he saw a word. And this word has to do with the latter days. Verse 2 says it shall come to pass in the latter days. And so let me say something quickly here about the last days. Because we get confused about this and a lot of Christians get caught up in the last days and they're, they're looking for every presidential election. They're thinking the Antichrist is coming, right? And so we just can't help it. We read left behind books and that's our theology and we don't read the Bible. We just read what Tim Lay has to say and we don't really process things, okay? So let me give us some, a, a good overview of how we need to think about the last days. When we read the Bible, this is here in your notes, we need to understand that the last days are here. Here, today. We are living currently in the last days according to the Bible. And the last days in Scripture has to do with the age of the Messiah. Isaiah sees this word, he sees this vision, he sees this prophecy of the latter days. So one of the hard things of interpreting Isaiah isn't what is he saying, it's when is he talking about. When are we talking about? Latter days. Well, we need to understand the last days are here. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says, But in the, these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So according to Scripture, the last days has to do with the age of Jesus, where, where God has spoken to us through his son. He hasn't spoken through Moses. He, he's not speaking through the prophets anymore. He's speaking through his son. 
And so we understand that the last days is the age of the church. It's this time where Jesus has been raised from the dead and now the church is taking the gospel to the world. These are, in a sense, the last days. But there's also a sense of the last day. Right? We understand there's a last day as well. And so the last days are here, but the last day is coming. The last day is coming. It's not fully realized yet. Right? If you go down to Isaiah 2 verse 12, you kind of see a hint of this. Look at Isaiah 2 verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. So we are living in the last days. There is no age after this. This is the age where the church advances the gospel. But we understand there's a day coming, right? Y'all know what I mean? This is that day when mom and dad left out of town, told me to clean my room, and said, we'll be back soon. Your, your room better be clean by the time we get back. And I put it off, thinking that they weren't going to be home for a few days, and they came home early, right? And I'm not ready. I did not love their appearing, as 2 Timothy 3 says. I was not excited about them being there, right? Because I was frantic. I was, that day came. I was living in the last days, but the day, or it's a bad illustration. I get it, whatever. Acts chapter 17 verse 30 says though that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the living and the dead and he has given assurance of that day as we read last week by raising Jesus from the dead. The empty tomb shows us that there is a day by which God's going to judge the world and that day is not here yet. Right? So what does that mean? It means that we are currently living today in the last days. We are living in the last days. I love what one of the commentators said about the last days. He said, The end of days is neither necessarily distant nor certainly near, but always imminent. It's always coming. Our thought today is, hey, Jesus, he could be back today. We, we, we think that he could. He could come back today. But, he, he may not, but if he's not here today, surely he'll be here by tomorrow morning. And if he's not here tomorrow morning, well, tomorrow afternoon, I'm sure he'll be here. It's this constant living in anticipation that Jesus is coming again. So we're currently living in the last days. This creates certainty that God's coming. It creates urgency to be ready. But there is a sense in which we are also anxiously waiting for the last day. We're waiting. Now we're told here that Isaiah saw the word. God shows him this vision and he sees it. Kind of like how in John chapter 1, the word isn't just heard, but the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. In a sense, this prophetic vision is, is, takes on flesh and Isaiah sees it. And what does he see? Let's read verse 2. He says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the mountain of the Lord being exalted or being lifted up above all other mountains. And so we're looking forward to this day. We're looking forward to this day. And what is this day? This is the day when God is glorified above all other gods. When he says that this mountain is being lifted up, 
above all other, all other mountains. He's talking about the one true God being exalted above all other gods. So one thing we look forward to in our glorious future is that the day when God is glorified above all other gods. And he gives this mountain talk. You notice in verse 2 he says that it'll come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be lifted up and it'll be higher than all the other mountains. What is he talking about? Is he doing some geographical restructuring and, and, and all and suddenly some mountains are going to be larger than others, kind of like those movies, you know, where the apocalypse happens and, and the world just shifts and all the land, get, you know what I'm talking about, and everything just gets jumbled up. Is that what he means? I don't think so. Mythologically speaking, gods supposedly lived on top of mountains, right? For the Greeks, Zeus lived on Mount, anybody remember? Olympus, right? Yeah, that was their mountain, right? Baal had a mountain. Zaphon, if you're curious, right? I had to look that one up. They all have their mountains. And so it was thought, even today, Buddhist temples are up on top of mountains because they believe that that's, the, that's where you get closer to God. Mountains are the places where the gods live. And so what it's saying here, mythologically, everyone believed that gods lived on top of mountains, but theologically what he's saying is that God's mountain will be lifted higher than all other mountains. This is not about elevation. Right? This doesn't mean that Mount Zion, God's mountain, is somehow going to be higher than Mount Everest. Now it might. God might want to just jack it up to 30,000 feet if he wants to, but That's not really the point, though, is it? God's not just going to lift up his mount and say, Ooh, I'm, I'm taller than all of you. No, that's not what he's doing. This is not about elevation. This is all about exaltation. This is about God being exalted as the highest God, as the greatest God, as the one true God. Mount Zion, the house of the Lord, the place where God dwells, will be exalted as the highest mountain. It will be the honored mountain. This shows God's triumph over all of the other so-called gods. Psalm 95 verse 3 says, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. But it's not just about God being lifted up above other gods. This is going to have an effect on the nations. It's going to have an effect on world religions because look what happens as a result of God's mountain being exalted. It says the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and the end of verse 2 says all the nations will flow to it. All the nations will flow not just to this mountain but to the God of the mountain. The nations are going to flow to this one true God. We see this initially happening at Pentecost, right? In Acts chapter 2, where all the nations are gathered and the Spirit comes and people are gathered to hear the gospel for the first time. And we're looking forward to that day when all nations will be represented, right? The nations are going to leave their false gods. They're going to leave their false religions. And they're going to flow like a stream to the mountain of the Lord. Now if you're reading this 48 times, you start to notice things. It says the nations are going to flow like 
to a mountain. What's the problem with that? Now, you don't have to be a scientist to know that streams don't flow down. Or they do flow down. Streams don't normally flow up. That's the word. Streams don't normally flow up. But we're told that these nations are going to flow like a stream up this mountain. This is intentional here. Because I believe God's drawing his people like a supernatural magnet. The Lord will draw all peoples to himself. Jesus said he would do this in John chapter 12, verse 32. He said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And God's drawing the nations. He's drawing them away from their false religions and their false gods. And he's drawing them to himself to worship and even though they're drawn supernaturally, they come voluntarily. Something causes these nations to leave their false gods and abandon other mountains to come to the house of the God of Jacob. Malachi chapter 1 verse 11 says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So we're looking forward to that day when God will be glorified above all other gods, when the nations will flow to that mountain. But that leads to, a, to another point here in verse 3. We look forward to the day when every people group will believe the gospel. We look forward to the day when every people group will believe the gospel. Look at verse 3. And what is the result of these nations flowing up the mountain? Verse 3 says, Many peoples shall come, and they will say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord will go from Jerusalem. This is, this is every people group, every nation desiring to know the Lord. There's a desire to believe the gospel, to trust in the Lord, to come and to worship him. And so what we see here is that in the last days, and in the days we live in, and in the final day, the nations will desire to know the Lord. Now we look around today and that is not the case yet, yet, but it's coming. That's the goal, that's the, that's the vision, that's the hope of where we are headed, that all nations, all people groups will have a desire to know the Lord. When you start reading Old Testament passages, you, you start finding these other rich Old Testament passages as well. And I wanted to read this one from Zechariah chapter 8. And it describes what the nations are going to say to each other. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I love this, 
In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take the hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Like that's Pentecost, right? You have people from every nation grabbing these Jewish apostles saying, God is with you. We see tongues of fire. You're speaking with tongues. Tell us, we know God is in your midst. Tell us, let us know this God. But the nations aren't just going to desire to know the Lord. The nations will also desire for others to know the Lord. What what do they say to each other? Verse 3 says, they look at each other and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Come, let us go up. They're not going alone. They look around, they see the Lord, and they say, Come with us, come. Everyone, come. Let's go meet with the Lord. John Calvin was commenting on this passage, and he says, The evidence of genuine faith is seeking to draw in as many others as possible. One of the ways that you know you're truly born again is a desire for other people to know the same God that you know. To meet the same Jesus that you worship. And here we see that the nations are telling everyone, come, come with us to the Lord. Come to this mountain. Let us meet the Lord together. Where is God drawing his people? Notice that God is not drawing the nations to a temple. It doesn't say that he's drawing him to the temple, but to his house. Verse 3 says, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Now, he could have said temple. In Isaiah's day, the temple was, was there. It was built. Why didn't he say temple? Something's being communicated here about the house A temple is primarily a place for worship. And that is what the people are going to do, obviously. They're going to worship the Lord. But what's communicated, what's the difference between a temple and a house? A temple is primarily a place for worship. A house is primarily a place for fellowship. God's drawing his people as a family. He's not some distant God that's just drawing people to bow down and worship him, but he's drawing them in for fellowship as well. They are worshiping, but there's also fellowship involved. Now, when we see this word house, we don't need to think in terms of a temple or a building. God is not calling his people to a building today, right? What are the gospel implications of this? The gospel implications is that God is not drawing his people to a place, but to a person. We see that Jesus is this house. He is the place where God dwells. And now God dwells within us. Which is why we are considered God's temple. Because God dwells within us. He doesn't dwell in a building built by the hands of men. He dwells in his people. And God's calling his people not just to a place, but to a person. He's calling them to the person of Jesus. And what is it that will draw these people? What is it that causes the nations to say, I want to go there. I want to leave what I know and go there. Well, the nations are drawn to the Lord because of truth. The end of verse 3 says, Well, they say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Why? 
that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law or teaching and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's the word being preached. It's the word being taught. It's the truth of God's word that draws people to himself. Which is why we preach. Which is why we teach. Which is why we share the good news of the gospel. We share God's word to the nations. Because it's the word that will draw people. The nations are drawn because of truth. And why are they going to come? The first reason they're going to come is they're going to desire to hear God's word. They will desire to hear God's word. It says there in verse 3 that he may teach us his ways. They want to be taught. They want to have the word. They want to hear the word. But notice that they don't just want to hear they also will desire to obey God's ways. They they don't just want to hear the word, they want to obey what he's saying. It says that they will say that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. This is Three Rivers DNA, right? What is our definition of discipleship? We break it down into two words, right? You ought to know this. What are the two words we break down discipleship in? Hear and obey. Right? That's, that's discipleship. Read the Bible, hear God's word, and obey God's word. So don't miss this, church. Let's be careful. We have so much access to scripture, so much access, access to Bible studies. We have so much access to the word that it's very easy for us as Christians to get complacent and comfortable only hearing the word with no real intentions to obey the word. And so don't miss this point here that learning is for the purpose of living. Learning is for the purpose of living. We want to live the word that we learn. We want to obey the word that we hear. We don't want to be like the people in James who hear the word and then like a mirror they walk away and forget what they look like. They forget. They're hearers of the word but not also doers of the word. We're told here at the end of verse 3 that out of Zion will go the teaching. The word of the Lord will go from Jerusalem. This tells us there are not many ways to heaven. There's not many mountains to get to God, there's one way, and then it's the teaching that comes from Zion, the teaching that comes from the Lord. It is that teaching by which we know the Lord. Learning is for the purpose of living. So what does that mean? It means for us today, Three Rivers, the head should warm the heart. What you hear today, let it not just go to your brain, let it go to your heart Don't let let it just be about thoughts. Let it transfer to your emotions. Let it transfer to your will. The head, what we know, should warm the heart and the heart should redirect the feet. What we believe changes how we feel and how we feel changes how we live. 
the nations are going to desire to come and hear the word of the Lord and obey the word of the Lord. There's something else we look forward to in this day. In verse 4, we look forward to the day when God brings peace to the world as our righteous judge. So we look forward to the day when God is glorified above all gods. We look forward to the day when every people group believes the gospel. In verse 4, we're going to see that God will bring peace to the world. We look forward to that day. Let's read verse 4 again. It says, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Doesn't that sound like a good day, right? Man, no war. Where does this peace come from? This peace comes from the nations recognizing that God is good. He's the source of all good. That he knows and he does all things well. And the nations submit themselves to the judgment and lordship of Christ. They submit themselves to him and say, Lord, you know best. And so what's it like? What's it going to be like then? A couple of things this text says. The first thing, it wars will be gone. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Wars will be gone. And he gives another image here. Weapons will become garden tools. Weapons will become garden tools. It says that they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Now after reading this on the 48th time, I noticed a little detail here. Did you notice that they are not going to exchange their swords for plowshares? But they're going to transform their swords into plowshares. Now why is that a meaningful detail? What does it imply? If you have a sword... And instead of turning it into a garden tool, you put it in your closet just in case and you go get a garden tool. The implication is that there's still a chance for war. There's still a chance for fighting, so I'm going to keep the shotgun in the gun case just in case. I'm going to keep the sword in the sheath just in case, but that's not what they do. It says that they take their swords and they beat them into plowshares because they will need their swords no more. I don't need any guns. I don't need any swords anymore because God has established universal peace. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? And then we get to verse 5. And Isaiah stops talking about the future and he gets right into the face of the Jewish people and he starts talking about the present. And in light of that glorious future, of all of these great things, of God being glorified, of the nations believing the gospel, of God bringing peace to the world, peace on earth, and goodwill towards men, 
in light of all of that, there's something we need to do. Verse 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now why does he say this? This is a rebuke to the Gentiles, or to the Jews. This is a rebuke to the Jewish people. Because I want you to see what they were doing while he's telling them this. Let's keep reading. We're not going to look at this passage. I just want to read it to you. Keep reading to verse 6. All right. Why is he telling them to walk in the light of the Lord? Verse 6 says, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. Because they are full, notice the idolatry. They are full of things from the east. Of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. So their confidence was in idols. Also their confidence was in their riches. Verse 7. Their land is filled with silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their confidence was in their wealth. Their confidence was in their strength. Their land is filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. They are filled with idolatry, verse 8. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their own hands, to what their own fingers have made. Verse 10 says, Enter into the rock, hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of His majesty. Israel, be careful because you have sinned and you deserve the judgment of God. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. He's telling them your pride will be humbled. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And then we get to verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day. He has a day and that day is coming. And church, as we read this, we need to not just look at this in terms of Israel. Be reminded of our own sin. Be reminded today of our own tendency, our own tendency to put our confidence in our wealth, in our 401k, in our retirement plan, and in our treasures. We have the tendency toward idolatry. We have the tendency to worship false gods that bring us temporary pleasure. We have the tendency to be proud with a haughty spirit. We have the tendency to be arrogant and to ignore the fact that there is a day coming when God alone will be exalted. And so he's telling the Israelites, come, come now, O house of Israel, house of Jacob, walk in the light of the Lord. This is a rebuke to the Jews because what are the Gentiles saying? In verse 3, the Gentiles are saying, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Let us go worship the one true God. And the Jews refuse to go up to the mountain of their God. What he's saying is, Israel, if the Gentiles, if the pagans are going to one day walk in the light of the Lord, you must also walk in the light. You're the lighthouse. Oh, house of Jacob. You're Jacob, the house of Jacob. Do you remember how Jacob got his birthright? Esau denied it. Esau ran away for temporary pleasures of soup. And Jacob, you got the birthright. Live up to your namesake and don't deny your birthright and the blessings that have been given to you for lesser things. Don't become like Esau. He 
He's trying to stir up jealousy. He says, Jews, look, do you not see the pagans going to worship your God and yet you turn your back on him? John Calvin writes this in his commentary about this. He says, lo, God is speaking. And he says, God says, lo, the Gentiles flow together to Mount Zion. And every one of the Gentiles exhorts and urges on his neighbor. They submit to receive instruction from God. They submit to be corrected by him. And why do you, O Israelites, you who who are the inheritance of God, why do you draw back? Shall the Gentiles submit to God and shall you refuse to acknowledge his authority? Has so great a light been kindled in every part of the world and shall you not be enlightened by it? Shall so many waters flow and will you not drink? What madness is this that when the Gentiles run so eagerly you sit still in idleness? So what is, what is Isaiah calling three rivers to today? What does he mean, church, when he tells us, O house of Jake? Let's put three rivers in there. O three rivers, in light of this glorious future, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is a call to two things. First, this is a call to holiness. In light of Advent, as we, appre- as we approach Christmas Day, as we approach the coming of a Savior, let us Live lives of integrity and holiness. The church's future is secure. The only question is whether we're going to choose to be a part of that future through present obedience to the Lord of the church. So let's walk in the light. Church, let's walk in the light as we approach this great day of Christ coming the first time to save us from sins. Let's walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let us walk in the light of God's favor. He says, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's walk in the light of his favor. Numbers Numbers chapter 6, verse 25, that blessing, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. That's not just a promise in numbers for Israel. That's a promise for you. Because of Christ and the gospel, today you have favor upon you. God is well pleased with you. He loves you. You are accepted as his children because of Christ coming to die for sin. Walk in that favor today and stop trying to earn God's blessing. You have his blessing. You have his favor. So walk in it. Walk in the light of his favor. Church, walk in the light of his presence. God, Emmanuel, has come to dwell with us. God lives with us. He is here. He has given us his Holy Spirit. And we're told, I want to read Psalm 27, just the first verse. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Walk in the light of his presence. Know that the Lord is with you. That Jesus will be with us always to the end of the age. As we go forward with this mission, we have the Lord's presence with us. Walk in the light. And church, let's be a church that walks in the light of his word. Let's walk in the light of his word. Psalm 119. Lord, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
How do we walk in the light of his word? We submit to his word, but we also need to read his word. And so one thing we're going to do as a church starting in January is we're going to have a a Bible reading plan for the whole church. We're going to read through the Bible together as a church next year. And we're going to equip you as families to read it as families as well. We're going to give, uh, we have a plan that has your private reading time and your family reading time. Read a chapter a day with your family. But we need to live in the light of his word, in light of this new year. We walk in the light of his word. So when Isaiah says, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord, this is a call to holiness. But this is also a call to missions. This is ultimately a call to missions. If the nations are going to be saying, let's go to the house of the Lord, the church must live in the light. We are the means to that end. God will reach the nations through the preaching of the gospel through his church. And so I put a, a line there that I think is important. The world will never say in verse 3, let us go up to the Lord, until the church says in verse 5, let us walk with the Lord. I think if we summed up this entire sermon, we could sum it up with that phrase, right? The nations will never say, Let us go up to the Lord until the church first says, let's walk in the light of the Lord and carry forth his gospel. And I was reading this passage and I was just thinking about the future. I thought, how cool will it be on that day when we no longer have to say, our Father in heaven Let your kingdom come. It's coming. It's here. And it's coming. It's already, but not yet. And so church, let's live in the reality of that today. Let's pray. Father, in heaven... May your name be hallowed and glorified above all other gods today. And may your kingdom come. I look forward to the day when I don't have to pray that anymore. When I can say your kingdom is fully here. But Lord, we believe your kingdom is here. It's advancing. But it's not yet fully established on the earth. So Lord, let your kingdom come. Let it come. Let your will be done on the earth as it has already been done in heaven. Father, we long for the day when you will be glorified above all gods. We long for the day when every people group will believe the gospel. We long for world peace that only Jesus can bring. But until that day comes, Father, help us to live in the light. Help us to walk in the light and to no longer live in darkness, but to walk in the light. You have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the light, into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We have forgiveness of sins, redemption, because Christ has come and he is coming again. Let us live in the reality of that second coming. Jesus, be glorified today in our worship and not just in what we've heard but in how we live. In Jesus' name, amen.